Ron Dermer has been Israel's ambassador to the United States since 2013. Not an uneventful time for Israel, America, the Middle East, and many other countries around the world. He is due to return home after the U.S. elections. Until then, he has much work to do. He's agreed to talk about what's on his desk and what's on his mind with me and with you here on Foreign Policy. Either the U.S. enforces some rules in the world, or there are no Every U.S. Rules. president has tried to diminish tension with Russia, has reached out to the Russians. Most of those have failed, especially when Vladimir Putin became the leader. They're still killing guys who joined the jihad in 1979 or 1980 or 1981, who are still in the we game. We are seeing a ramp up in North Korean cyber capabilities over the last decade. Iran is basically putting forth these claims of nuclear innocence that they are doing nothing wrong, that there are no violations, and that's just factually not correct. I am fearful for what happens to Turkey now. If you thought that it was dangerous that a coup might have toppled this democracy, think about what this very autocratic man might do. So, Mr. Ambassador, welcome to our virtual studio. Good to be with you, Cliff. I wish I could offer you a drink, but uh, if you but if if you if you got it, you know, go ahead. We won't we won't mind. Look, let's begin with the headlines. For the first time in more than a generation, an Arab country, one of 21 nation states in the Arab League, in other words, one of 21 Arab countries, is fully normalizing relations with the one and only Jewish state with Israel. What do you find most interesting about this development? What are, we, what are people not noticing? Well, it's a big deal. Uh, as you said, it's been a quarter century since we had our last uh, breakthrough like this in terms of Israel's ties with, uh, with an Arab state. We, our first peace agreement was, of course, with Egypt in 1979. Our second peace agreement uh, was with Jordan in 1994, and this would be the third Arab state. And each one of them was different in their own way in different circumstances. Um, and they all were, I suppose, breakthroughs in their own way. And I think this, if you look at, let's say, going back to the peace agreement that was signed uh, with Egypt, uh, when Sadat made his historic visit to Jerusalem, it really broke through a, a wall of Arab rejectionism uh, towards Israel. And at the time, I think Egypt was thrown out of the Arab League, if I recall correctly, and all the Arab states were opposed to it. And, and actually all the Arab publics were opposed to that decision. But it was a critical decision in our history because I think it moved us from a situation of hot war uh, to cold peace. And certainly cold peace is a lot better than hot war. And a big shift. And I think it took the major military power in the Arab world out of the zone of conflict with Israel. And I think it made the chances of a broader Arab-Israeli war, um, it, it took that essentially off the table because Egypt had moved into a peaceful relationship uh, with Israel. And of course, it changed its its relationship with the United States in the process, uh, United States vis-a-vis -vis the Soviet Union and everything else. I think in the case of Jordan, what you had was a move really from a state of a cold war to cold peace. Because as you know, Cliff, uh, we had wars with Jordan uh, in 1948 and certainly in 1967. Uh, they did not join the 73 war, which was between Egypt and Syria and Israel. Uh, and they were in a state of a sort of a Cold War with Israel from 1970 until they formalized the peace in 1994. So if you, Egypt, you went from a hot war to a cold peace. With Jordan, you went sort of from a Cold War uh, to a cold uh, peace. And now I think we have the opportunity actually with the Emirates to move very quickly uh, towards a warm peace. And the situation we have today, I don't, I would call it a cold war. I wouldn't call it a cold peace. It's probably somewhere, you know, in between. You do have contacts. You do have Israeli businessmen that go there, sometimes, you know, with a, with a second passport. You do have some institutional connections as well, but it's largely underneath the surface. And I think the opportunities for peace with the Emirates, for normal relations with the Emirates are huge because the Emirates as many of your listeners probably know, is a commercial and financial center um, in the region uh, and beyond. You're talking about um, a, a country with enormous resources. I think the Sovereign Wealth Fund, I, I understand, is somewhere around a trillion dollars with great investment uh, potential, with great entrepreneurs. And of course, married to uh, an agreement with Israel, 
where you have this uh, innovation nation and all the Israeli technology and that startup uh, ecosystem there, I think the sky's the limit. And I think one of the things that has been different about this uh, peace agreement, it's how it's been received. I mentioned that Sadat, when he made his peace, was sort of rejected by the entire uh, Arab world. Here, that has not been the case with this breakthrough. You've seen positive statements from Bahrain, positive statements from Oman. And in the, if people who understand how to read the tea leaves uh, in the Middle East, or the coffee grinds, I should say, maybe in Middle East diplomacy, uh, you can see that also uh, other states in the region, Saudi Arabia and others, have, have been positive in the language of the Middle East. It has been positively received. And among the publics, to the extent that we can see it on social media and other things, you've seen sort of much broader backing that would otherwise be the case. So I think this peace between Israel and the United Arab Emirates has a chance to not only be top down, but to be bottom up and to see these ties between Israeli businessmen and Emirati businessmen. And it wouldn't surprise me, Cliff, if you make a, take a trip uh, to Dubai in a couple of years and go to a hotel there, you may hear more Hebrew than you will Arabic. And if you go to a hotel in Tel Aviv, you may hear more Arabic than you'll hear uh, Hebrew. And I think that bodes very well uh, for the region. And I think one of the other things asked understood, it sort of broke a paradigm, this piece. And the, the paradigm that it breaks through was an idea that was put forward by many policymakers and many diplomats for many years, in fact, decades, that says the road to peace with any Arab state must go through Ramallah. And I cannot tell you, Cliff, how many times I had senior American uh, officials of both you know, Republican and Democratic administrations tell me, you know, if Israel would make peace with the Palestinians, you'll be able to have peace with 21 Arab states. And I would tell them, well, that's great, uh, as long as you have Palestinians who want to make peace with you. But what if you Palestinians are not willing to make peace with you? Are we going to give veto to the Palestinian leadership over Israel's relations with the Arab states? And I think the decision of the Emirates to, to move into this re new relationship with Israel has taken away the veto power of the Palestinians over progress in the region. And I think that not only, not only bodes well for Arab-Israeli peace, but ultimately to an Israeli-Palestinian peace, because it would help those forces within Palestinian society who would like to make peace with us. It would help, I, I would think it emboldens them, and it enables them to confront the rejectionists and say, look, you think the entire Arab world is behind you? It's not. You know, the Arab states are moving towards Israel. And I think it would encourage moderation within Palestinian society and ultimately help us achieve an Israeli-Palestinian peace as well. You know, I mean, a couple of things come to mind. I've, I've visited United Arab Emirates. I've visited Oman, Bahrain, Saudi Arabia. I do think it's possible, and I do think it's actually probable at this point that there are Arab states that have decided that tolerance for for other peoples in the region, tolerance for, for, the, for the Jews, who they do know come from this region and have been in this region forever, um, maybe, maybe, maybe real. They may not think that it's un-Islamic to tolerate a small, tiny Jewish nation state, uh, a place where the Jewish people can have self-determination in a small part of their ancestral homeland. I think that may be, that actually may be for real um, and I think they're also frustrated with the Palestinian leadership. They know Hamas has no intention of ever making peace with Israel, can't do it theologically in any other way. And Mahmoud Abbas, I think, is not going to do it in this lifetime. It's a matter of who, who succeeds him and who knows what that will be since no succession process has ever been really established. Uh, but I think they are getting frustrated with him. And I guess you can comment on that, but there's one other thing. And as I, I mentioned in a column I recently wrote, it would be so nice if the Europeans, America's friends, Israel's friends, would say to the Palestinians, look, you have to recognize that there is and will be a Jewish state. And if you do that, you can cut a very good deal with them, I'm sure. We'll be behind you. But if you're going to hold out for the destruction of Israel, we really cannot stand with you. That would be a contribution to a peace process the Europeans could make, haven't made, but should make. There's no doubt about it. Unfortunately, the Palestinians have not crossed that Rubicon psychological Rubicon in a century since our conflict began, and you have not seen a Palestinian leader 
uh, that would say that the Jewish people have a right to a nation state in our ancestral homeland. It just has not happened. And I think for our conflict to be resolved with the Palestinians, they are going to have to uh, cross that Rubicon. And, and if Arab countries cross the Rubicon first mm-hmm. and recognize the permanence and the legitimacy, frankly, of Israel in the region, and I think you speak to the legitimacy, is it possible for ideological forces there to understand and appreciate uh, the Jewish people's inherent connection to the land of Israel. I, of course, I think it's possible because it's true. You know, if, if Israel, you know, if the Jewish state were in Uganda, I tell you that we are what our enemies say we are today, which is we'd be a garrison state, a colonialist state. And even though Israel's accused of being some sort of colonialist project, uh, we are the only people who is living on the same land it did thousands of years ago, speaking the same language um, and practicing the same faith. The land of Israel is the land, you know, where the patriarchs of the Jewish people prayed, where our prophets preached and our kings ruled. Now, can that be recognized by the Islamic world? I would hope it can with that history. And there are actually passages within the Quran that talk about the, you know, the promised land and that see this history of the Jews. Now, right now, the forces, certainly in recent decades, that are ascendant in the Islamic world have not been those forces for reconciliation, but that's changing. And it's been changing over the last few years. And you see signs of that change, different religious leaders that are more open to interfaith dialogue. And I think you can divide the Middle East, many areas of the Middle East between uh, the forces, let's say of modernity versus the forces of medievalism. And there's no question that the Emiratis and particularly the crown prince Sheikh Mohammed bin Zayed is a force for modernity in that region that would like to propel his his, uh, nation forward. And I think what you've seen happen, Cliff, in recent years, there are, you know, everyone has asked me in the last uh, week, you know, what was the the straw that broke the camel's back? You know, what was the last meeting or the last breakthrough? Why is it happening now? But people have to understand that a lot of this was happening under the surface for several years and brought us to the moment where this could break to the surface. And a lot of factors went into it. One of those factors was the rise of Iran as a power. And a few years ago, a very dangerous nuclear deal was made with Iran that really united Israel and the Arab states together. The one silver lining of the very dark cloud of the nuclear deal was that it brought Israel and the Arab states together because the Arab states recognized Israel as an important partner in a common struggle against this, uh, against this uh, shared threat. A second thing was the rise of uh, a Sunni radicalism. Iran is a, as your listeners know, I'm sure, is, is a Shia, the regime is a Shia radical power. Mind you, Israel doesn't have a problem with the people of Iran. I don't think the people of Iran represent a threat to the United States, to Israel, or anyone, but the regime represents an acute threat, an existential threat, frankly, to Israel, and a grave threat to, to countries in the region and also to international peace and security. That's Shia radicalism. But there's Sunni radicalism. You saw it, Al-Qaeda was 1.0, and ISIS is 2.0, and there'll be a 3.0. And these Sunni states, who are forces for modernity, are very, very concerned about those radical forces, whether of the Shia or the uh, Sunni variety that would like to take uh, the Middle East back either to, you know, the 7th century or the 9th century. The joke is they should come together and maybe just decide on the 8th century, they can combine the forces. But they're concerned about the rise of these radical forces. And I think a third element to this, frankly, Cliff, has been the perception that America was withdrawing from the region, at least in terms of its military commitment uh, and military footprint, I should say, in the region. And the more that the United States is perceived to be withdrawing from the region, and that's certainly true today after Afghanistan and Iraq and in the wake of that, and it's true across the political spectrum in the United States, the more the United States is perceived to be reducing its military commitments uh, in the region, the more the importance of Israel as a reliable partner for these states, the more it grows. And that was a third element. And I think the final element was the fact that um, Israel is a global technological power. And the idea that you would have this boycott against Israel by the Arab world is a little bit like having Oregon, Nevada, Utah, Wyoming, Colorado, New Mexico, Arizona, and half of Southern California boycotting Silicon Valley. It makes no sense. If you are on the side of modernity in the Middle East, you want to be in an alliance with Israel. 
for your security and for technology. And I think uh, the crown prince of, uh, of the Emirates understands that very well. And that's why I think he used the opportunity to present it itself from the diplomatic things that had happened with the unveiling of the uh, peace plan by President Trump and then later by Israel's move to extend sovereignty. And maybe we'll talk about that but to extend sovereignty to these areas, I think he used this opportunity to really create a bridge to move over towards a, uh, uh, a friendship with Israel. And I think that friendship can turn into a warm uh, a friendship must, much faster than people think and also can be replicated. And we can have several states do that. And I don't want to be Pollyannish about it. There's a lot of things that can go wrong. But this is a true breakthrough after a quarter of a century. And I think it takes us into a different place both in terms of working together against the shared threats like Iran and also seizing uh, enormous opportunities for very broad prosperity in the region. You've raised a few issues that I want to explore in more depth. Let's start with this. Israel did agree to a concession uh, in exchange for this normalization. The, the UAE and other Arab states did not want Israel extending sovereignty to parts of the West Bank. Uh, I know you were very much in favor of sovereignty extension. So start with this, was the trade-off worth it in your view? Well, look, I, I have no doubt that the decision that uh, Israel's made is the right decision for our country. What I can tell you is if you look back historically in the peace with Egypt, Israel had to um, uh, concede the Sinai, which mm -hmm. is three times the size of Israel and also has important energy resources that can make you independent in energy there, uh, certainly at that time. And then in the case of Jordan, the peace with Jordan, which some people think, well, didn't really have concessions. Well, the truth is it only came in the wake of Oslo in this case, and maybe even reinforced the idea that the road to peace has to go through Ramallah, and you have to get some sort of enormous breakthrough with the Palestinians. Uh, and those concessions were made in Oslo, proved to be, in my view, extremely dangerous for the country, and we're still dealing with the results of those concessions. In this case, Israel didn't make concessions in terms of our national security. We didn't uh, withdraw from territory. We didn't uproot thousands of people from their homes, all ideas that I think would be disastrous for Israel. What we were asked by the U.S. administration is to suspend extending sovereignty to areas uh, within Judea and Samaria that would be part of Israel, according to the vision that President Trump put forward. As you remember, uh, Cliff, they put out a plan, the administration, in January should remember there were three Arab ambassadors who were at that unveiling of the plan, which had a map. It was uh, the Emirati ambassador, the ambassador from Bahrain, and the ambassador from Oman. And then the U.S. and Israel understood, hey, we don't have a Palestinian partner. They've rejected the plan just as they have every plan uh, for the last century. So now what do we do? And the U.S. and Israel worked together and come up, came up with a plan that we were going to extend sovereignty to parts uh, to those areas that the Trump plan designates as being part of Israel in the future. And in exchange, Israel would not extend sovereignty to those areas that would become part of a future Palestinian state should the Palestinians ever negotiate a compromise with us that would be based on the framework that the Trump administration put forward. And we were moving ahead with that plan and very close to reaching the end point for extending sovereignty into those areas. And that's when the Emiratis came to the administration and said, you know, we, you know, take this off the table. And if you take this off the table, we will, um, we will go and normalize relations with us. So the United States didn't ask us to permanently take, us off, take it off the table. And we would have refused if they did, but they asked us to temporarily suspend this. And they said, this is a unique opportunity um, and to give us the, let's work together, let's create the time and space that we need in order to take advantage of this shift in the Arab world and surface it. And perhaps not just get even one agreement, but two, three, four, five. And that is, you know, an offer you can't refuse uh, because they're coming with something real. They weren't coming with the hope that something could happen in the future. They came with something real, a true breakthrough. And I think, Cliff, I know that it is possible that we could get several more in short order. And I think that that is why it was so important. And as for the issue of sovereignty, there is, you know, these areas that we were going to extend sovereignty to, we are committed to keeping them part of Israel in any future peace agreement. There is a plan on the table that calls for them to be part of Israel in any future peace agreement. 
but we did uh, decide to temporarily uh, suspend uh, this uh, decision to extend sovereignty there in order to enable this process to happen and to focus uh, in the coming period on taking full advantage of that. And as for the future, I can't tell you what's going to happen in the future, but right now I think it is clearly in the interest of Israel to take advantage of this shift uh, in the region. And the administration fully supports that and decided that was the right thing as well. Some people listening to us are going to be saying, what's this uh, euphemism, extending sovereignty? We're talking about Israel annexing these territories. That actually is imprecise. Do you want to succinctly tell us why? Sure. Well, you can only annex the territory of another sovereign state. There was not a sovereign in the territory that's Judea and Samaria or that much of the world calls the West Bank. Uh, that territory... Uh, was promised to the Jews actually by uh, the League of Nations. And before that, it's the San Remo Conference. And before that, you had the Balfour Declaration that was supported by the international community. And the League of Nations folded into the United Nations. And so the right of the Jews to settle the area that today is Judea and Samaria is clear in international law, despite comments that people make that this is illegal according to international law. That's when you know that somebody's not telling the truth. They say it's illegal according to international law. Um, it's not. Uh, Israel has a claim to those territories. Now, the Jordanians, because in the war, in Israel's War of Independence in 1948, the Jordanians conquered those territories. And their rule over the West Bank was not recognized. That was an occupation that was not recognized by the international community. I believe the only two nations, if memory serves, was Pakistan and Great Britain that had recognized Jordanian control there. So once Israel came into possession of the, those territories because we won a, the defensive war of 1967 when there was an attempt to literally choke Israel on all sides. We liberated those territories. And then the question is, what is the ultimate settlement of that territory is going to be? We have a claim on that territory. The Palestinians have a claim on the territory. The Jordanians have relinquished their claim. They did it in the 1980s. They relinquished any claim, I believe it was 1988, relinquish any claim that they had to the West Bank. So the Palestinians have a claim, we have a claim. It is disputed territory. Um, and that is why you remember last year, the State Department had put something out, um, issued a, a legal paper also saying that, you know, the issue of building uh, settlements, so-called settlements, Jewish communities within Judea and Samaria, that that is not uh, illegal uh, according to international law, because Israel has a claim to those territories. These are disputed territories. Therefore, you cannot call them an annexation because you can only annex territory from another sovereign state. Now, when Israel applied law to the Golan Heights uh, in 1981, that could have been considered by many members of the international community an annexation because that territory was seen as part of the sovereign state of Syria. And that would be considered an annexation. Whereas this, this decision, which ended up now not happening, but also the decision in Israel in 1967 to apply law to the eastern neighborhoods of Jerusalem, that would be of the same type. It's not an annexation. It's an extension of sovereignty into the, or the it, precise, the application of Israeli law into those territories, which we believe we have a very strong claim. You know, uh, there's one thing, I want to add here, and you're too diplomatic to add it. I don't have to be diplomatic. Um, I have very few people say that I'm too diplomatic for anything, but I appreciate the compliment. I, I offer it in good faith. The Jordanians are at peace with Israel. The Jordanians are good friends of the U.S. I have respect for for the for the Hashemite monarchy and what they're trying to accomplish. But the fact of the matter is, the territories you're talking about were taken by with through the use of military force, as you say, they were conquered. And the Jews who were living in those territories, they did not get the rights of Jordanian citizens or the rights of a, of a minority. Uh, they were not uh, treated um, as with respect, even if they were non-combatants. They were expelled. They were forcibly expelled from all of those lands we now call the West Bank. And the Jewish religious sites that were there, many of them were desecrated. And this is something people forget. And I kind of think it shouldn't be forgotten. So I just, I throw that out because I do think that's a point of history that, that does need to be recalled. And it's, you know, it's, it's, it is not something Jordanians, as much as the Jordanians can be proud of, that's not something. Well, they certainly can't be proud by use, for using the gravestones 
of those who are buried on the Mount of Olives, the uh, probably the most famous cemetery in the entire world, and certainly the um, the Jewish cemetery that is most resonant in our faith. Uh, they used the tombstones and the gravestones in the Mount of Olives to pave uh, latrines for the officers. So they certainly can't be proud of that. And and at that time when Jordan in 1967 control up until 1967 48 to 1967 controlled uh, the old city of Jerusalem you didn't have the ability to go pray there Jews it wasn't open for people of all faiths Israelis currently certainly could not go there and pray despite the agreements that were reached by the way in the armistice agreements of 1949 and Jews from around the world couldn't go and pray and now we have a situation because of Israel because we are an open tolerant pluralistic society that respects freedom of worship you can have people of uh, certainly the three great faiths and you know beyond can come and, and pray and worship uh, peacefully um, in Jerusalem. And part of this agreement that we just made, the Abraham Accord, uh, the so-called Abraham Accord, uh, that was the name given by the administration, will enable people, hopefully Muslims from uh, the Emirates and, and beyond who want to come peacefully to Israel to go visit the Al-Aqsa Mosque. And they can see that uh, most of what has been said about Israel uh, in terms of trying to destroy the mosque and trying to uh, prevent freedom of worship is all nonsense. And they'll see for themselves what an open, tolerant, um, and religiously pluralistic society Israel is. This last question before we go on to uh, the Islamic Republic of Iran and what's going on at the UN. I want to make sure we have time for that and many other things. And that is this. Do you, uh, we, we agree, obviously, that Hamas, does no, no matter what the Arab countries say, no matter what the Saudis say, the Hamas is, I, I, they are not going to say, you know what, let's sit down at a table, let's have some coffee and hummus, and let's figure this out and have live in peace with the Israelis. That's just, that's just not, I, it seems to me entirely impossible. I don't predict many things. I predict that won't happen. And the other thing is Mahmoud Abbas at the age of 84, 85, I forget exactly, not in great health. I, my view of him is that he sees, he wants his picture to be hanging next to that of Arafat in Palestinian offices everywhere. And that the only way he ensures that is by not making peace with Israel, by dying uh, as a, a, a fighter uh, against Israel to his last breath. And so everyone awaits who will replace him, and we don't know, and we don't know by who will have even influential in that process. And so it's just not, even, even though what's happened with United Arab Emirates and may happen with other countries should be pushing the Palestinians toward at least negotiations. It's been 10 years since they've been really, I think I'm right, right willing to sit down and seriously negotiate anything. It's not going it, to, still there's a roadblock there and that roadblock I, I, is Mahmoud Abbas and I don't see it moving. Well, I, I would correct you. I don't think they were ever serious about real negotiations. It's much more than 10 years. Uh, it goes back to Arafat at Camp David that wasn't serious about doing it. I think that they thought their strategy would be to take whatever territory Israel would give them and to continue their conflict. And they wanted to, they want a Palestinian state, unfortunately. They want a Palestinian state not to end the conflict with Israel, but to continue the conflict with Israel. And that's where we are. But I can tell you, Cliff, one thing I am certain of, the only path to peace the true path to peace is ensuring that Israel remains an extremely strong country. It took us three decades as a country to reach peace with Egypt, and that was because we had to repel aggression, we had to fight multiple wars, and we built our country over several decades before the establishment of Israel, but since the establishment of Israel, 30, 30 years of making Israel stronger. And I think since that time, Israel has continued to get stronger decade after decade, and because of our rise as a power, as a military power, as a cyber power, as a technology power, as an economic force in the region and beyond, I think that has brought, um, brought many countries closer to the understanding that it, and if you can't beat them, join them. And I think a lot of people, that is what brings us allies from around the world. People do not make peace uh, with the weak, they make peace with the strong, and people generally do not seek out weak allies. They seek out strong allies. So what will happen in the future, I can't tell you, but the best way we can reach a point where there could be a potential Palestinian uh, Sadat or a Palestinian uh, like King Hussein or Palestinian Mohammed bin Zayed to emerge would be for Israel to remain extremely strong and for the forces within Palestinian society who support a compromise with Israel, 
for them to look at the rejectionists, who I think today, unfortunately, represent the majority. They certainly represent the Hamas faction, which is, you know, half of Palestinian politics. But even within Fatah, they haven't reconciled themselves to the permanence of a Jewish state. When these more moderate forces that would like to do an agreement with Israel, they'll be in a much stronger position <clears throat> than to look at the rejectionists and to say, look, uh, the uh, cavalry of these 21 other Arab states is not coming. They're on the other side. They've already crossed the bridge or they crossed the Rubicon. I'm mixing metaphors here, but they're already on the other side and, and we need to move in order to have a better future. And I think you have to have a Palestinian leader, a Cliff, who is more interested in the fate of the Palestinians than they are in the Palestinian cause. Because unfortunately, the cause of the Palestinians for the last century has been the destruction of Israel. The PLO was founded in 1964, but before any of these so-called, you know, occupied territories, quote unquote, was, uh, was quote unquote occupied by Israel. So, you know, what territory was the PLO trying to liberate in 1964? Well, it was pre-67 Israel. And so the Palestinian cause for the last century has been about the destruction of a Jewish state, not the establishment of a Palestinian state. And that's been bad, unfortunate for Israel and even more unfortunate for the Palestinians. Whereas someone who cares about the Palestinians who want to see the improvement of their lives, they will gravitate towards peace. And I think there are those forces within Palestinian society. There are those, especially in the business sector in Palestinian society, that would like to reach such a compromise. But to make peace with Israel today is, would be to, in the minds of all these rejectionists, would be to destroy the Palestinian cause. And we need this Palestinian leadership to emerge that says, no, to make peace with Israel is great for the Palestinians. And that's why we're going to lead our people to achieve it. That has not happened yet. I think what happened last week on Thursday with this uh, historic breakthrough I think it, it brings us closer to the day when it will happen. You know, you have an Arab-Israeli conflict, a Cliff, and you have an Israeli-Palestinian conflict. Many people believe that they, you know, are completely, uh, almost completely overlapped. There's a Venn diagram, and there definitely is common ground, but they're two separate things. And I would hope that this breakthrough with the Emirates, it, it, and if all goes well, and a lot can go bad, but if all goes well, people could look back at this moment and say this was the beginning of the end of the Arab-Israeli conflict. And if we have several states that follow, and if you move from two to three to three to four, five, 10, 12, 15, you move more and more states into this sort of circle of peace, then we could look back at this being really a historic uh, moment. Now, will that solve the Israeli-Palestinian conflict? No. And I don't think those states will force the Palestinians to reconcile once and for all for a Jewish state. But I think it will reduce the power of the rejectionists tremendously and strengthen the forces of moderation within Palestinian society. And our hope was that ultimately they will finally, once and for all, the Palestinians cross that Rubicon and recognize the right of the Jewish people to a nation state in our historic homeland. That's, they have to recognize that the Jewish people, frankly, are the people of Judea that's where we get our name. Shouldn't be so difficult for them to do because of our history in the land, but they have not got there yet. There's one other thing I want to bring up, even though I want to move on, be as succinct as we can, and that's the BDS movement, boycott, divest, sanction. Those who initiate it and who are behind it, some of them are very candid. Their objective is to destroy Israel. But some of them, including too many, I would say, Jews here in the United States, say, no, no, we're not for destroying Israel. We are for Israel ending its occupation of the West Bank. And what they seem unable to grasp, even though it would be obvious, is that for Israel to move out of the West Bank without security guarantees, pretty much, pretty much we know what will happen. What happened in Gaza, you will have not just rockets, but mortars falling on the main population areas and the international airport. Almost immediately, Fatah will take over from the PA because to an extent people don't want to admit Israel guarantees the security of the Palestinian Authority. What they're asking for is for Israel to essentially open its shirt and let itself be hit. And that would that can only result in another war and a bloody one for Israelis and for Palestinians alike. And I just think understanding about that, about the BDS movement, so, so many people do not. And it seems to me so obvious. 
Well, look, I think uh, be, beyond what you said, uh, Cliff, I, the BDS movement is an anti-Semitic movement because it singles out Israel alone among nations of the world for boycott, divestment, and sanction. You know, I'm Israel's ambassador, and I get all the time, every week or so, somebody will come to me and say, well, what do you think about this group or that group that has decided to boycott, divest, or, you know, sanction Israel, have called for that? And the first thing I ask is, what number are we on their list? I mean, are we number 10? 20, 50, 80? Do they have 80 countries that they're seeking to boycott, divest, and sanction? Because if that's the case, if they have a list, then I figure they got some principle. They're applying, they're casting their net widely over the entire world, and they've caught a bunch of countries that have violated their principle. And I believe that my job as Israel's ambassador is to explain to them why they're wrong and to engage them on that. I wouldn't accuse them of being anti-Semitic, I would just say, I think you're wrong. Here are the facts, here are the history, here's things you don't know. Uh, put it into context and everything else. But when I hear that we are the only ones, that Israel's the only country on their list, that the one democracy in the Middle East is the only country on their list, then it's clear to me that there is a principle when you single out a Jewish state alone among nations, it's the same principle uh, when you single out Jews alone among nations, and that's anti-Semitism. Now, the fact that you would have, for instance, academic groups, and they exist on many campuses, who are calling to divest and boycott and sanction Israel, the fact that this is happening at a time when we live in a world where academics are imprisoned or shot in dozens of countries for saying certain things or publishing certain things and going against what the powers that be are. And Israel is a free country where academics can say what they want, write what they want, publish what they want. Believe me. I mean, you see that you know a lot about academics in Israel, and believe me, they can say whatever they want. Or that you have this absurdity where you have even church groups, so-called, I mean, they are church groups, but so-called Christian groups who say we are going to divest from the state of Israel. Now, you know, uh, in, in the Middle East, uh, Cliff, over the last century, there's been a genocide against Christians. Christians were 20% of the Middle East 100 years ago. Today, they're four. In the Middle East in the last three years, we have seen ancient Christian communities decimated. We've seen Christians decapitated. And there is one country in the Middle East that has a growing and thriving Christian population, which is the state of Israel, whose Christian community is five or six times what it was in 1948. So it only makes the decision of Christian groups in the United States to divest from Israel all the more outrageous, and it only exposes this absurdity. So look, uh, it's unfortunate that people get attracted to these movements, some of them with good intentions, uh, but you know, the road to uh, hell is paved with good intentions, and I suppose the road to anti-Semitism is also paved with good intentions, and I would ask them to insist that Israel be treated like other countries in the world are treated and to actually have principles when you're going around boycotting and divesting and sanction Israel because we're the only country in the world, Cliff, and this is a, it's an interesting thing for me and has been for many years, that any time Israel does something wrong that is perceived to be wrong, it immediately loses its quote-unquote right to exist. You remember a few years ago in, in Iraq, you had the experience of Abu Ghraib and the horrific things that happened there. I don't remember people saying, well, America has no right to exist because of that. But any small thing, any flaw in Israel, any time, you know, the New York Times reports that something happened at some checkpoint somewhere, you know, we're a country of 9 million people, okay? It could be a dozen people in the country do something wrong or something stupid, or, and all of a sudden, Israel has no right to exist. And what I think that speaks to is a deep and powerful wellspring of anti-Semitism that has not been removed from the world. A lot of people thought that after the Holocaust, there was a period of about a half century where it was politically in incorrect to go after Jews. And a lot of people thought that was the new normal. And what you've seen happen over the last couple of decades, and I trace this, frankly, to the Durban Conference, which was a kind of carnival of hate and anti-Semitism in 2000 or 2001, um, we're just returning to the historical norm of anti-Semitism, where the old hatreds are resurfacing. It is no longer politically incorrect uh, to go after Jews. It is certainly not politically incorrect to single out the Jewish state. 
Uh, and I think, I, I'm not frankly surprised about it because my sense of Jewish history goes back beyond breakfast. But um, I think it is uh, it, the importance, I think it's important to understand the huge difference today from where we were in the history of antisemitism. Today, the Jewish people are not powerless. So it's not that we ended antisemitism, which many of the founders of Israel hoped for. They thought that, you know, the reason why there was antisemitism in the world, this was, you know, over 100 years ago, about 120 years ago, many people said, you know, the reason why we have antisemitism is that the Jews are a minority everywhere, a majority nowhere. So if we have one place where the Jews are a majority, then Jews will be treated around the world like other minorities around the world are treated. And antisemitism would sort of wither on the vine. And in 120 years, it's interesting, people have come full circle because then at the time of Herzl, people said the reason why there's antisemitism is the Jews do not have a state. Now people say the reason why there's antisemitism is the Jews do have a state. Then they said, Jews go to Palestine. Now they say Jews get out of Palestine. And the truth is, Israel is not the cause of antisemitism or the cure for antisemitism. But Israel did give the Jewish people the collective power to fight back. That is the meaning of the reemergence of Jewish sovereignty in our time. That's a, a short answer to a long question. All right, let's move on to the Islamic Republic of Iran. A conventional arms embargo imposed by the United Nations 13 years ago, it's due to expire to sunset in October. So what happened? The U.S. went to the Security Council and asked that the embargo be extended. Russia and China said, no, of course not. France and the UK, permanent members of the U UN Security Council, as are Russia and China, along with Germany, Belgium, and Estonia, abstained. Now, this was a hard question for them. Should it become, and the question is, should it become easy and legal for the world's leading state sponsor of terrorism to buy and sell all manner of conventional weapons, including fighter jets, uh, jets uh, attack helicopters, battle tanks, Navy platforms? I got to say, this is a dreadful disappointment. If they had voted with the U.S., okay, Russia and China still get to veto at the UN Security Council. That raises questions for me about that body, but never mind, put that aside. But they'd be showing solidarity and principle and saying, of course, Iran should not have the right to buy and sell conventional weapons. And we don't want to see Russia and China selling them. And we don't want to sell them to sell those weapons to them either. Not while they are supporting terrorism, threatening United States, death to America, threatening Israel. But no, they couldn't stand up for principle. I gotta say, I'm just, I'm just so disappointed in, in our allies in Europe. The problem is you have higher expectations than I do. <laughs> so I, I didn't have expectations, I wasn't surprised, and I guess that's why maybe I wasn't disappointed. I take for granted that most of the countries in the world are not prepared to do what's necessary in order to protect international peace and security. And the reason why I wasn't disappointed is because five years ago, those same leading powers made the nuclear deal with Iran, which was a disastrous deal. And I think the worst, the worst agreement that was made uh, since the Munich agreement. And what it did is it paved Iran's path to the bomb. It didn't block Iran's path to the bomb, like everybody said, running around claiming when the deal was signed that this was going to block Iran's path to a bomb. We are they're a country, Cliff. By the way, they're still saying it. The, 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 yeah, those I, you know what? And they'll say it because it's religion. It's an article of faith. It's yeah. not the point that you can logically argue anymore. But what people should ask themselves, well, if this were a deal that actually blocked Iran's path to a bomb, why did the country that is endangered by the Iranian nuclear bomb more than any other country, the state of Israel, and a country that an Iranian regime, the Iranian regime, vows and works to destroy us every day? They openly call for the destruction of Israel, and they work to... Uh, to destroy the state of Israel. They try to do that through their, their proxy Hezbollah in Lebanon. They try to do it by embedding themselves in Syria. They try to do it by, um, by I sort of entrenching themselves militarily in Syria. They try to do it by supporting Palestinian terrorists. And they openly call for the destruction of Israel. They tweet out that they are going to destroy Israel. The leader of Iran said, is, you know, five years ago, he says it, within 25 years, Israel will be destroyed. And they openly call for wiping Israel off that. So you had a nuclear deal that was signed with this regime that didn't block its path to the bomb. It paved it. And why did it pave it? 
it paved it because all of the restrictions that were put in place on that deal were going to be automatically removed after a few years. And once those restrictions are removed, there is nothing preventing Iran. They don't need to, to sneak out or break out to the bomb. They can just sort of walk in to the bomb. And it's, it, it, it is not shocking to me because I saw that the world united in backing this um, ludicrous deal that paved their path and gave them the right to basically have restrictions on arms in five years no restrictions on missiles in eight years, that the centrifuge restrictions that the deal, and that's how you spin uranium to get nuclear weapons, the centrifuge restrictions would be removed in 10, and the stockpile restrictions about uranium would be removed in 15. And the prime minister of Israel, when he came to speak in Congress five years ago and opposed this deal, he said openly that, he said the danger of the deal is not that Iran's gonna violate it to get to the bomb, the danger of the deal that Iran is gonna keep it to get to the bomb because all these sunset clauses will be removed. And what did he say at the time? He said, a decade may seem like a long time in the life of politics, but it's a blink of an eye in the life of a nation. Now we're five years later, and the first sunset clauses are coming up in October, which was the arms embargo. But we are grateful, Israel is very grateful, that the United States under President Trump has shifted its policy. And you saw the beginning of that shift in 2017, his first year in office, where the president refused to recertify the nuclear deal. In 2018, the president withdrew the United States from the nuclear deal. In 2019, they got rid of the waivers that, were, that was allowing Iran to sell oil on the markets, on the international markets. And that was the big money of the deal. You know, a lot of people say, Cliff, well, that Iran got all the money up front and we should stay into the deal because we already gave them everything up front. That's not true. The 50 or 100 billion or 150 billion dollars, that was the signing bonus of the deal. The real money in the deal was the ability for Iran to sell oil on the international market. And when the Trump administration pulled out of the nuclear deal in 2018, in May 2018, Iran uh, shortly thereafter was selling, I think, 2.8 million barrels of oil a day. And Earlier this year, Iran was selling several hundred thousand barrels of oil a day, a difference of about two and a half million barrels a day. And right now, oil is about $40 a barrel. Most of the time, it's been around 60. You take $60, two and a half million barrels every single day. That means $150 million was not going to Iran every day that otherwise would go. $150 million a day is four and a half billion dollars a month. It's over $50 billion a year. Do the math over 10 or 15 years, and you say, you see, you have over a half a trillion dollars that pours into Iranian coffers. And I would love to tell you, Cliff, that the Iranians were using that money <clears throat> to establish a GI Bill for returning members of the Revolutionary Guard. But what they were doing, it, we were using it to fuel their war machine in the region, in Syria, in Iraq, in Lebanon, in Yemen, in Gaza, and elsewhere. So when Trump didn't recertify the deal in 2017, when he withdrew from the deal in 2018 and restored sanctions, he then pulled the plug on the oil, on the waivers to the oil in 2019. He put enormous economic pressures on Iran and he started to force countries to choose, are you going to do business with four, uh, a $400 billion Iranian economy or a $21 trillion U.S. economy? So what do you think the choice is? Now, it might be that you got European leaders who say, well, we're going to stick to the deal. But guess what? Uh, British airlines and German banks and French oil companies, they're not going to put at risk their relations with the United States or their access to the U.S. Um, economy or financial markets in order to business with Iran. And so you've seen a huge shift. And earlier this year, also, uh, President Trump made it, the enormously bold decision to take out the biggest terrorist in the world, Qasem Soleimani, earlier this year, who was actually driving that war machine for Iran. And it brings us to the point now uh, in August here, soon before the first sunset clause is going to expire, that the United States, frankly, is pulling the plug on a deal that was on life support. And it's a great thing that they did. Uh, and hopefully in 30 days, it will come into force. Uh, and that sanctions, all the UN Security Council sanctions will be restored, which will mean the arms embargo will be, will be continued. It will mean that there will not be a missile sunset clause in three years and that we can get rid of this nuclear deal once and for all because the nuclear deal didn't do what it was supposed to do. It did not dismantle Iran's military nuclear capability. 
And Israel would love to see a peaceful solution that would dismantle uh, Iran's military nuclear capability, but this is not it. And the last point is remember that we had an operation a couple of years ago, Israel did, that exposed the lie that was the foundation of this whole deal, that Iran did not have a military nuclear program. It exposed that they've always had a military nuclear program, and they still do. The Mossad you know, got the archive from the heart of Tehran, and the Prime Minister, Prime Minister Netanyahu, exposed it throughout the world, and it showed that the whole thing was a farce, and the whole thing was based on a lie. And now the IAE also is not being allowed to go into certain places. Now, it was Israeli intelligence that got that, not those inspectors. You remember what they said at the time, Cliff, that the inspection regime this is going to, is more like, uh, I don't want to offend anybody, but it was, it was more Inspector Clouseau uh, uh, than, uh, than, uh, than uh, uh, what's it, Inspector uh, Columbo, who's the right? Belgian detective, what's his name? Agatha Christie? Poirot, yes, it was more Clouseau than Poirot, sorry. Uh, and... Uh, and it's clear to me that this was an extremely bad deal. Uh, and I think it's great that um, they went out of the deal. And I think one other thing, if I might, is that it, when this deal happened, you had all the major powers in the world around the table. But two forces that were not around the table were the Arab states and Israel. Mm -hmm. Our voice was not heard, which was very different than the deals that were made with North Korea, because sometimes they compare those two things, because there used to be six-party talks in North Korea, and at that table were the Japanese and the South Koreans, which are U.S. allies in the region. And they were asking the United States at that point to do those deals, both the Clinton administration and the Bush administrations. They say you should do those deals. And that has to count for something in the moral calculus, that those who are on the front lines, those who have the most skin in the game, are telling you to do the deal. In the case of the nuclear deal with Iran, those on the front lines, Israel and the Arab states, we're not at the table. And somebody once told me that if you're not at the table, you're probably on the menu, okay? And now we're in a situation five years later where, where both Israel and the Arab states support the policy uh, of the United States in snapping back uh, these sanctions. We were together five years ago. The difference between us and them is the prime minister said publicly what they were saying privately. But now both of us are together in, uh, in calling for the restoration of sanctions on Iran because we understand in the region what a danger Iran is and the fact that the nuclear deal with Iran did not do the job at all. It didn't solve the main problem it, and it made all the other problems worse. You know, we have to spend one minute, I think, on how the U.S. administration how the, is snapping back the sanctions and the embargo. It's complicated. I'm going to try to put it very briefly but I welcome listeners to, to go and look up what my colleague at FDD, Richard uh, Goldberg, has written about this because he's been exquisite in the detail he's provided for what this is. And basically it's this. There was something separate from the agreement, which was UN Security Council Resolution 2231. It was the UN Security Council embracing the JCPOA, but it was a separate thing, and it gave the U.S. the prerogative to unilaterally, unilaterally extend the expiring arms embargo and snap back all other international sanctions. And by the way, John Kerry and President Obama bragged about this as they were trying to sell it. Five years ago this month, Obama said, we won't need the support of other members of the UN Security Council. America can trigger snap back on our own. Now people say, well, when you left the agreement, when you left the JCPOA, you gave up that right. But that isn't true. You may wish it were true, but it's not true. There's nothing in the UN Security Council that's the resolution that says that. A contract is a contract. Maybe people should have thought of that. Maybe they wish they had, but they didn't. The U.S. has that right, irrespective of the JCPOA, to do that. So that argument is probably not going to hold. And what they're doing is, is very audacious. Um, and there are people who I like, like John Bolton, who think it's a bad idea only because it makes things complicated at the UN Security Council. But I don't think there's no question in my mind that if the shoe were on the Russian foot or the Chinese foot, they would say that a deal's a deal. This is the deal you made. We're sticking to it, the letter of the law. It's a contract. Anything you disagree with there? Anything you want to add to that before we go on? No, I think you're right. Uh, and the, in the U.S., it's clear that the, the relevant issue is not actually the JCPOA, but the U.N. Security Council resolution. That's what's relevant. What was put in the resolution, not what was put in the JCPOA. And the U.S. 
in our view, clearly has the right to snap back the sanctions. They've started the process now. What has to happen, is, if nothing happens, we should say, if nothing happens, all the sanctions snap back in 30 days. The only way that that can be prevented is that some country will have to put forward uh, a, a resolution calling for the continuation of the suspension of sanctions. And then the United States would be able to veto it. That was how it was constructed. And I think if uh, these other countries are taking a different legal position, look, I, I don't know it's, if it's, if it's going to matter that much. We'll have to see how it plays out because you might have arguments of lawyers. I think the political message is very important. Uh, and I think the idea that the United States has finally, after five years, snapped back the sanctions is important. And what should happen now, and we'll see how this plays out, uh, is I hope that if the plug is finally pulled, and I hope it is, that you will finally get Britain and France and Germany uh, standing with the United States and, and, and trying, no matter what happens here in November, trying to work out some new understanding that actually solves the problem, you know, that closes the nuclear file. It had there other problems, you know, sometimes it's said, Cliff, that because there are other problems with the deal besides the nuclear problem. There's the arms issue, there's the missiles. But you should understand, Israel's objection, Israel's objection to this deal was first and foremost that it did not solve the nuclear problem. It did not close the file on Iran's military nuclear capability. It allowed them during this deal to advance their capability because according to the deal, they can do advanced research, a research I should say on advanced centrifuges. They are doing this during the deal. They are advancing their military nuclear program. Some people think, you know, we kick this can down the road that for the next 10 years, they're not gonna develop their nuclear program. That's not true. They're developing advanced centrifuges. They're developing more sophisticated missiles. And we know from the archive that they had a, a very advanced uh, a capability to weaponize that as well. So Iran was trying to put all these elements together so they could do a big breakout when the restrictions would be removed uh, in a few years. And thankfully, we've sort of head that, headed we, we headed off at the pass, and I hope that will happen, is that this, wherever anybody was when the JCPOA was signed, I hope that people can come together and to try to craft a new policy that would put a clear red line that says Iran has to dismantle its military nuclear capability. And that's uh, n the leading powers of the world are not going to compromise on it. There's no reason for Iran to have the ability to enrich uranium on its soil. If they want a peaceful nuclear program, there are many countries around the world that have peaceful nuclear programs that do not enrich uranium on their soil. And there's no reason why this should happen. And we hope that this will uh, end the nuclear deal and, and turn the page on what I think was a huge, huge uh, danger uh, to the region, to Israel, and to the world. You know, I've got another dozen subjects I'd like to talk to you about. We probably don't have time today, to my chagrin. Let's, let's do one last subject, and that's your northern border. Because beyond Iran is Hezbollah, which is, which is the, the foreign legion, essentially, of the Islamic Republic of Iran. It means to spread the revolution. It has there. It is the most powerful political force in Lebanon. More to the point, it's the most powerful military force. The Lebanese armed forces do not dare to challenge Hezbollah. They have had for a long time something like 130, 140, 150,000 missiles pointing at you. But now there are best estimates I hear, perhaps 300 missiles that are not dumb missiles, but smart missiles, precision guided munitions. Uh, this is, they've been supplied with these by the Islamic Republic of Iran. Meanwhile, their economy is melting down. They've had that unbelievable, terrible explosion in the port. A lot of, we don't know a lot about it. We've had the UN just uh, after years of investigation really come up with nothing. We know Hezbollah was behind the assassination of Prime Minister Hariri years ago, but the UN couldn't deal with that investigation properly. That's, you disappointed from the UN? I was going to say that. I, I was going to say this, and I knew, you, I knew what you would say, so I didn't say it, actually, because you're right. It's exactly what you'd expect from the United Nations. Um, so this is, so in addition to Syria, where the Islamic Republic is trying to establish forward bases, uh, in addition to Gaza, where there are both rockets and incendiary balloons, you're helping the Egyptians fight jihadist forces in the Sinai. Every inch of land you've ever given up is now, in one way or another, occupied 
by Islamist terrorist forces, I think I'm correct about that, you have the threat of a war in the north. And who knows, I don't, how Nasrallah, the head of Hezbollah, is thinking about this and how the Iranians are. Do they think, well, if Lebanon's going to collapse, let's do it gloriously. Just give me your take and then I'll let you go for today about the northern border and what's going on up there. Well, two things in the north, we've got Lebanon and we have Syria. In Syria, we have an, you know, an active policy of defending ourselves and preventing Iran from entrenching itself there um, and establishing you know, bases to be used uh, against Israel, just as they established Hezbollah uh, in Lebanon. And we have had to act, um, as has been uh, reported, uh, hundreds of times in order to uh, prevent that from happening and also to, to stop uh, these precision-guided weapons from finding their way uh, to Hezbollah. In the case of Lebanon, you know, Hezbollah effectively controls Lebanon and has for several years. And you're quite right, they're the foreign uh, legion of uh, Iran's terrorist regime. And Iran, if your listeners do not know, is the foremost sponsor of terrorism in the world. And Hezbollah has a huge terror network, an international terror network that extends in, on five different continents. It's actually pretty entrenched now in South America and different countries as well. So it's, it's a real danger. And they pose uh, an acute threat uh, to Israel. Uh, and we're determined whatever, to do whatever we have to do uh, to defend ourselves. You saw this, uh, this terrible action uh, in the port that had nothing to do with Israel. Uh, but it is a fact that Hezbollah embeds uh, armaments and, and places armaments and terror infrastructure within civilian areas and is using the Lebanese people as a human shield. Uh, you may recall a couple of years ago at the United Nations, the prime minister held up photos. One photo was of Beirut International Airport, and he pointed out that close to the runway there, Hezbollah had put a, a, a manufacturing facility for precision-guided uh, munitions. And then not far away from the port, which was slightly different there where this explosion occurred, pointed to another place where they have it. But there are several places uh, in Lebanon where uh, Hezbollah is reported to have um, um, missile infrastructure, explosives, and other things. And it poses a great danger. Also, your listeners should know that Hezbollah uh, terrorists were caught in safe houses in different places around the world, London and Cyprus are two. There was also in, in, in Borges and it was in Southeast Asia. And certainly in the case of London and Cyprus, they had ammonium nitrate, tons of ammonium nitrate explosives that they were planning to use. So this is part of Hezbollah's MO. So we, we have to wait and see exactly what happened in the port and what was the sequence of events. But there's no question that there is some sort of Hezbollah um, involvement there because they place these explosives in civilian areas. And it's a great danger to the people of Lebanon. And hopefully they will take action to, uh, to, prevent, Iran, uh, to prevent Hezbollah, and by extension Iran, from using them uh, as human shields. And Hezbollah is constantly, constantly planning attacks against Israel. And we're gonna have to respond very forcefully against those attacks. And I think it places, um, the Lebanese population in, in grave danger. And I think there are many, many who would like to rid themselves of Hezbollah, uh, but Hezbollah is the party with the guns. And it's important for the international community to support those forces in Lebanon who, uh, who want to take on uh, Hezbollah. And it's not enough, uh, Cliff, we talked about the UN to pass wonderful UN Security Council resolutions because you got UN Security Council 1701 and it's, it's, as, it's as perfect as the Soviet constitution says everything you want to have said, but it doesn't do anything to prevent Hezbollah from arming itself. By the way, right? say what we should just tell people who don't know what it does say, which is that Hezbollah is to be disarmed. And in fact, there's UNIFIL, there's a UN uh, guys in uniform who are supposed to do that. I think about 10,000. I think it costs about a half billion dollars a year. A lot of it picked up by the US. And of course, it's not doing that job at all. It's not doing it at all. Um, and it's, it's a big force there. I don't know exactly what it's doing. If it has one, you know, positive role, it, it helps communicate between our military and the Lebanese military. But with the Lebanese military, there's a problem 
of also Hezbollah infiltrating itself and essentially weapons that could be provided to the Lebanese army uh, could end up in, in the hands and generally would end up in the hands of Hezbollah. But that force has not gone into the areas to disarm uh, Hezbollah. And Hezbollah has gone in 2006 from having you know, roughly 10,000 rockets to, as you say, having some 130,000, 140,000, 150,000 rockets and, and is trying to develop a precision-guided uh, munitions capability, which would be a, a, a grave danger uh, to Israel. And I hope that given what has happened in Lebanon and the, the recklessness of leaving you know, 2,700 tons of this material by a port and could have been set off by armaments and other things, and we'll have to see exactly uh, what happened. But I hope that's an opportunity for every responsible member of the international community uh, to turn uh, to uh, Lebanon and, and insist that these armaments and explosives and terror infrastructure be removed uh, from Lebanon. And that would actually um, do wonders uh, and be very good for reducing the prospects of a very, very bad conflict between Israel and Hezbollah, and because of that, Israel and Lebanon. That's the last thing that we would like to see, but we're going to have no choice but to defend ourselves. All right, as I said, many subjects I'd like to get to that we didn't get to today. Thank you again for being with us. Thank you again for the interesting conversation. I've liked it. I hope all of you out there have liked it as well. Again, we'll have the ambassador on um, in a few months to talk about all the subjects we didn't get till to today. Until then, Again, thank you, be well, and thanks for listening to Foreign Policy. Thank you for listening to Foreign Policy. If you found the program worthwhile, we suggest you subscribe to Foreign Policy on iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, Stitcher, or wherever you prefer to listen to your podcasts. If we could be doing better, tell us. Send us your feedback, your questions, your ideas to foreignpolicy at fbd.org. For more information about this episode and others and about our distinguished guests, visit us online at fdd.org. Until next time, I'm Cliff May, and you've been listening to Foreign Policy.